0: Thank you so much, Matt and Josie. Indeed, we are going to make a progression into the presence of God, I hope, tonight. In a very special way, we will have uh, Matt back at the end of the service. Tonight, I hope that we can understand why it all matters. Why are we here? Why are we looking at the prophecies? Where are they focused And is is this mainly a cerebral or a intellectual journey or is this indeed something that is to transform me in heart, mind, and body? And Tonight I'm hoping that especially Jesus will be more near and dear to you after we think about the cornerstone of the prophecies. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for uh, the journey we're on, for sustaining us, for bringing us back together, Lord. And I'm praying tonight that you'll give us a clearer glimpse of who you are and what the plan has been and remains. That our hearts and our minds would be given over to you in willing allegiance and that we would represent to the world a beauty of holiness, the glory of who you are. So bless us now as we look across the span of time and reflect on what you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Tonight, I want to help you understand how you can see the significance and the big picture in the Bible in regards to prophecy. I want you to know that right from the very beginning, God gave us freedom to choose. And that freedom was because we were made in the image of God. If we did not have that freedom, certainly we could have been kept from making a wrong decision, but we could never have been able to love and to worship. We could never be able to give ourselves away to someone of our own free will because God would have been programming us, and the program would not have allowed us to make decisions that would actually carry our our heart's desire and our mind's choice to the highest order of adoration and praise to Him and really uh, special gifts to each other. There had been war in heaven. Lucifer had rebelled. This is something you can read about in the book of Revelation chapter 12 and that rebellion was also a function of free choice. Lucifer, over a period of time, blinded himself to who God really was. And thus, cast out of heaven, he was given the opportunity to go to the worlds where there were free-thinking, intelligent beings and see if he could convince them. Planet Earth, for as new as it was, was one of the places he came. Adam and Eve were in their garden. They had been warned. But Eve was beguiled by a flattering serpent, not distasteful and fearful, but instead amazing in its ability to read her mind for indeed as she was there at the base of the tree the snake was saying to her did God really say and a conversation was engaged in which I'm sure her beauty was adored and soon she was sucked in and she wasn't used to anyone lying to her and she chose based on a falsehood the reality was was that she had been told she wouldn't die. Unfortunately, it was a lie. God knows that the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But God had said, don't. Adam's sin was different than Eve's sin. I want you all to understand this. Eve was tricked and believed a lie. But Adam had a decision to make Eve or God? And I want to tell you, every single person on planet earth comes to a place where they have to make that decision. That's why Jesus said when He walked the earth, He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus knew that to truly love our fellow human being, we needed our hearts and minds calibrated by His Spirit within us. The only way we can really love each other is to put God first, and every human being will come to a point in time in which, whether it's a girlfriend or a wife or a child or a parent, they will be called to make a decision. The devil will make it look like you're about to lose everything, where indeed you'll be laying a foundation for a lifelong love if you trust Jesus and put Him first. Adam took and ate. And the course of the human race was changed. Our family and their choices affect us. It's so important that we trust God and let Him lead. And then something begins to experience uh, that they've never experienced before. They're cold. They're afraid. And they want to be covered up because the light that covered them was gone. Now, I want to know what happened after this. Did God... Uh, from heaven send uh, a dynamic lightning storm down here and ionize and destroy and fry the human race? Did He from heaven declare that a, a host of angels, a myriad of men and, or, or those of dwelling with angelic light, descend and wipe out the rebels? Indeed, God had a plan. And His plan preceded the choice to sin because He knew individuals created with the ability to choose to reject him might do that there was a sacrifice God came down and he asked what had happened he knew but God wanted to engage the lost and they needed to confess what they had done and the truth of the matter was they needed to be covered with something more than leaves their own coverings were pathetic there were lambs that were chosen and Adam and Eve themselves slayed them outside of the garden of Eden there would be no death in the garden as Christ was sacrificed outside of Jerusalem so these lambs were sacrificed outside of the first home and there will be no sin that enters into that special Eden as a matter of fact we will receive the garden of Eden again in the new earth and we will enjoy what was forfeited when our estate was lost But blood had to be shed. And I want you to see right from the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, three things happen. Number one, there's a mediator. There's someone who interjects himself so that the lost can be saved. Number two, there is a penalty for sin. The price has to be paid. Rebellion leads to death. God's laws lead to life. God is love, and His love is life. And number three, there is the pronouncement of judgment. Now, unfortunately, the judgment... Let's back up. Fortunately, the judgment was not immediate death. It could have been and it should have been. Except for one thing the heart of God. God steps in. Why? Because God is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He has made provision that he will pay the price for the rebellious race. And the reason that Adam and Eve do not die in the moment is because Christ himself will intercede and Christ's word is good. You can count on it. He has promised that he would make interposition for the lost and he steps in the lamb that is slain has no real power to save adam and eve it only represents the power of heaven to restore and to redeem there is a plan and right from the very beginning we see christ's blood christ's mediation and christ's offer for vindication. I want you to remember this. This is exceptionally important because when we examine the Bible and we look at prophecy, most of those prophecies are hanging around the promise that God can make it right. God can redeem it. God can restore it. This is what the scriptures are all about. Man gave away his estate. He should have been chattel slave to Lucifer. Instead, he is bond servant And that's different. Satan is not owner of man, but man has sold himself to Satan. There's a big difference in the type of slavery. But Christ steps in so everyone can have a choice. And if they should not want to serve him, God protects their ability to choose yet to serve God. It's on the merits of the promise. It's on the merits of the blood. And it's on the hope that God will vindicate. So I want you to know, right from the very beginning, we see in Genesis chapter 3, Christ's blood, Christ's mediation, and Christ's offer for vindication. This is very, very important. Now, I'm about to transition to a formalization of this sacrificial plan. What happened in the garden was God's response to sin. It revealed his heart. And by the way, Jesus said, this is eternal life to know God. Eternal life is not a get out of jail free card. It's not a get out of hell free card. Eternal life is to be in love with the people that love you. In this case, with the God who created you. But as time went by, men lost, they lost sight of the meaning of the sacrifice of God. They actually. And many, for instances, stopped sacrificing. God's people became slaves. They probably, most of them, were not keeping the Sabbath. And, and probably most of them were not offering up the sacrifices that pointed to the coming Redeemer. And when they were liberated from Egypt, God reinstituted the teaching about the way. But it's important that we know when we look at Scripture that God said, "'Thy way is in the sanctuary.'" Who is so great a God as our God? The sanctuary will become the teaching model for the heart of God and the plan of redemption. This is very important to know because I'm going to show you not long from now how prophecy points to every single part of this plan of redemption. And it's modeled in simple form in the sanctuary. That lamb slain outside the gates of Eden will be a lamb that represents many yet to come, but represents ultimately the life of Jesus. When they had been liberated, God said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell amongst them. It was a tent, it could be all taken down. It travelled with them throughout the desert. It had many layers for a roof. It was made of uh cedar, a lot of it, or uh shatine, wood. And it was covered in gold. The colors in the sanctuary were fantastic. And it was uh, basically made up of three different components. Now these three different components are going to look and sound an awful lot like what I've already described to you. In the outer court right here is where the lamb was slain. Once that lamb was slain and it was slain by the sinner, it was a gruesome event. It was specifically designed to remind you of how terrible sin was. And Israelites were for years were shepherds. They loved their sheep. And the idea of taking the life of those sheep that they had protected on the mountainsides and the fields was completely against everything that their heart, mind, and life had stood for. But in this outer court, they would shed the blood of the lamb. They would cut the throat, catch the blood. And this would represent the coming payment of what rebellion costs. It would be a price paid by God Himself in the life of His Son. After the blood was shed, the priest now, representing Jesus, would take that blood and he would go into the holy place. And in this holy place, he would sprinkle blood in front of this veil. Inside this place, there were three pieces of furniture. There was a little table with bread on it. There was a seven-branch candlestick that made a beautiful light inside the gold-covered, uh, wood that comprised the room, and there was these tapestries, these beautiful uh, curtains that hung, and there was an altar of incense. Blood would be put on the horns of the altar of that incense. The incense would rise over the curtain and go into the holy place. Now, there's three components of ministry. It's just like in Genesis chapter three. There's the blood in the outer court, which pays the price for sin. There is the restored relationship which is the mediation of the priest, which now is creating a connection between the sinner in the outer court and a holy God who dwelt in the most holy place on the mercy seat. And once a year, this compartment, to which all of the sins had been symbolically brought to, because the, the life of the animal was represented by the blood, that blood now bearing the sins of the human beings in representation of how Christ would take on the sins of the world, once a year there would be an act called the Day of Atonement in which the high priest alone would go into this compartment and he would symbolically remove the sins from the temple. And you say, why would he do that? Because at the end of time, Christ is going to show that even though He will temporarily pay the price for man, and He will temporarily bear the misunderstanding of those who have rejected His goodness, He's going to show in the end that sin is not His fault. Stick with me. He will be vindicated. So I want you to see again, the blood, the mediation, and the vindication. One day out of the year, all of Israel was liberated from the sin that it accumulated, and it was pointing forward to a cosmic or a universal liberation. So, you bring the lamb, you take its blood. It is burned on the altar of sacrifice. It was your job to slay the animal. It was to remind you that disobedience was death. Then the priest would go in before that tapestry and put blood on the horns, of the altar he was representing you before god just as jesus does now and someday would and then one day out of the year on the day of atonement the priest would go into the very presence of god those two angels on that golden box called the ark of the covenant were to be a place under which the light of god's glory called the shekinah would represent his presence what happened in the outer court? And what happened in the holy place was every day of the year, even on the Day of Atonement. And once a year, however, the high priest would go in. Now, I want you to see how this is laid out. This is a look from above. Altar of... the altar of sacrifice, the bronze labor where the priest would watch, the holy place with the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And, of course, the most holy place. The way in was provided by the blood of the Lamb and was pointing forward to the coming of Jesus. When we go beyond this, we understand that there is sacrifice, there is mediation, and there is vindication. Now, there is an amazing prophecy in the Bible of which God will outline the moment in time that He moves from mediation to vindication. There is a clear description of the actual day as we heard that we could track in history the accuracy of the Bible in the past with the exodus. There is in the Bible a prophecy that points forward to the actual day when God goes beyond sacrifice, he goes beyond mediation, and he begins the work of vindication. Remember thy way. O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is the greatest God is Thee. All of the Bible is oriented around the three acts of Christ. The act of Christ to sacrifice. Those 39 books we call the Old Testament, they were all pointing to Jesus. There are hundreds of prophecies about the coming Messiah. Have you ever asked yourself, how did the scribes and the Pharisees get it so wrong? How could Jesus come and be rejected? It's precisely because they did not meditate and pray for understanding about the earthly sanctuary. When you read the book of Isaiah, have you ever read chapter 53, The Suffering Servant? How do you read through those last chapters of the book of Isaiah and not wonder what does this mean? If they would have taken more time to reflect on the ministry of the sanctuary, they would have known that the first act of God would be to suffer and pay the price of sin. But they went past all of that and read in the Old Testament some of those prophecies that point to the glorious enactment of Christ's kingdom after he's dealt with everything. And those are there as well. But it is the sanctuary itself that would have saved them. Instead, they didn't feel they needed to be forgiven for sin because they had purchased their lamb and they had shed its blood. And they thought that was enough, which is why Paul will tell them there is no such thing as real remission for sin through the blood of lambs and bulls and goats. When he met with Nicodemus that night outside of Jerusalem, Nicodemus did not see himself as a sinner. No wonder they weren't looking for a Christ that would suffer and pay for their sins. They felt like they were getting that right with the blood of animals. But there is no animal that could ever pay the price. It doesn't even begin to have a moral equivalency to a human being. But those lambs pointing forward to Christ, Christ reconciled the whole world. In other words, he took my sins and he took yours. How could he do that? Because he's God. He's our creator. And every single one of us have our being, our existence, and our redemption in Christ. Christ would be the Lamb who could take my sins. Christ would be the Lamb who could pay the price. Christ would be my substitute. And in Christ, I have a glorious hope. Amen. And after Jesus died on that cross, he was 40 days on earth, and then he ascended into heaven. And when he went into heaven, there was a glorious inauguration of a completely different phase of his ministry. Nothing was going to die in heaven, but the ministry of Jesus would move from sacrifice to mediation to vindication. And the Bible says that we are living in the age of vindication The Day of Atonement is the final phase of these three ministries. We know Jesus is our High Priest in Heaven. We know we can pray to the Father in the name of the Son. That ministry was going on from the moment Jesus ascended until this very day. And it will go on until He comes to get us. But there is a final phase of ministry the Bible talks about called the Day of Atonement. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever read John chapter 3, verse 16? All right, let's say it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. Well, there's Bibles in front of all of you. I'd like for you to get them out. Go ahead, get those Bibles out. I'm going to come down and get one for myself. And I want you to look that chapter up. John chapter 3 Looking at verse 16. How far back do I have to go to get a Bible? We need some more Bibles up here. Thank you. John chapter 3, verse 16. We just said that, so let's go to verse 17. Verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Can you say amen? amen? Well, let's find out why. Could we do that? Verse 18 is the secret. Why? It says in this Bible, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned what? Already. Already. This is an exceptionally powerful verse, friends. And I want to make sure nobody leaves here tonight knowing why, without knowing why. Because when we start talking about the Day of Atonement in prophecy, and when we start thinking about the final act of God, this verse is absolutely critical. God did not show up on planet Earth to condemn. He could, do, he could have done that from heaven. Nobody in heaven was wondering if we were guilty down here on planet earth. All they had to do was open the door of heaven and cast a glance down or lend an ear to hear the screams and see the selfishness and smell the stench. All they needed to do was get close to this little blue ball which is beautiful from space but isn't quite as pretty up close. And what was meant to be the crowning act of creation became the crowning act of destruction, self-destruction, and other people's destructions. God never had in mind and has never had it in his heart to condemn a single one of his creatures. He did not come to this earth for an act of condemnation. He came to this work to finish and fulfill the covenant he promised in the Eden where he said that even though the snake will bite, I will step on the snake of the head and put this earth back on the track to happiness and hope and I will someday vindicate my people and I will vindicate my father's name the work of judgment in in God's mind is always to liberate and redeem from the work of Satan but we're guilty and naturally understanding that we are condemned by our acts and our thoughts And so whenever the topic of judgment comes up, it's always very disconcerting to us. Now, if I am in Christ, there's no condemnation in Christ, Romans chapter 8 says, and so does the rest of John chapter 3, 18. Once I am in Christ, the condemnation has already been laid on the shoulders of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, friends, I want to ask you something. Have you ever read out of the book of jeremiah jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 here's what it says the heart is deceitful above what all things oh you've read it the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it so when you come to christ and you confess that you're a sinner Do you know the full scope of the depravity of your heart and mind? No. When you get on your knees and you confess to Jesus the sins you know you've done, does he know you're capable of more and worse? Then how can he actually declare you righteous? And how can he actually call you child? There's only one way, friends. Christ's work was sufficient and full and complete for the full restoration of man, not just legal justification, but actual transformation and restoration, and someday before the universe, vindication that he who began a good work in you was able to complete it, but it's all going to be by the merits of Christ, and it's all going to be by faith, because if my Bible reads accurate, and I know it does, when I come to Christ, I still don't even know myself, and what I will know about myself 10 years from now will probably be a little less flattering than what I would is willing to admit today. The act of salvation is a gift that supersedes even our ability to understand how badly we need it. So when Christ receives you and Christ receives me, it's for an ultimate goal of vindication. He puts on my record the blood that cleanses and washes away the evil eternal knowledge that I wasn't worthy of coming back into heavenly citizenship. And he, starts put, he puts into my heart a desire to love, which has a cleansing power. His love has the ability to cleanse me to actually love my fellow man and love him enough to where I would lay down my... My life. This love can raise me up above my natural self-interest. It has the power to overcome the selfishness that resides in my heart and mind. But when we come down to the final phase of Christ's ministry, which is the day of atonement, it has never been for condemnation. It has always been from the garden to the restoration. It will always only be to vindicate those whose lives are hid in Christ. Can you say amen? Amen. Three phases of ministry. If you want to understand the Bible, understand the sanctuary. Christ was coming. This is what everyone looked forward to. The lamb represented Jesus. The priest represented Jesus. The vindication on the day of atonement represented Jesus. And Jesus has always only ever desired to get his children home. The day of atonement was the day in which two goats were selected. He shall kill the gold of the sin offering, which is for the people. He shall bring the blood inside the veil, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and before the mercy seat. Don't you like that God's throne is called the mercy seat? I mean, is this good news or what? I mean, when I come into the presence of, of someone that's good and I'm bad, I naturally feel... Uh, so condemned when I come into the presence of God as we began this prophecy seminar we know Paul said desire the gift of prophecy because when people come in and they hear the edification and the exhortation and the consolation the secrets of their heart will condemn them God will speak and they will know that there's a transcendent being who is speaking to them and them alone so he shall make atonement for the holy place the sin offering for the people because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting the altar, he shall bring the live goat. I want you to understand something about the day of atonement because I'm going to explain this further in another sermon. Two goats chosen, they represent Jesus and Satan. The goat that represents Jesus is slain. Just like the one slain from the foundation of the world. It represents Christ who from the very beginning of making us and making our home said, it's worth it. Their free love, their free choice, their willing worship, their inclusion in our family will be worth the price I'm going to pay. We're going to create them anyway. That lamb whose blood was taken by the high priest into the very presence of God represents Jesus who after dying on the Christ would go into the very presence of God to vindicate us. It's not lambs and bulls and goats anymore. It's God's blood and it's for us. It's amazing. And when that work is done, and God's name is vindicated and God's people are cleansed, we still need to deal with the origination of sin. Satan's been let off the hook because he's accused God. And while God's being vindicated, there can be no execution of the originator of evil. But once the thing is understood by everybody, which is what I'll be talking about when I come to the sermon on the final conspiracy once the thing is understood by everybody, sinner and saint, it will be time for Satan's execution. And after Jesus comes to this world and Satan has been left here for a thousand years to think about what's going on, just like this goat is led out into the wilderness, all of those sins which had accumulated in God's house, he said, I'll pay the price. It wasn't God's fault. But now after all those sins have been taken out of the sanctuary and they're on the high priest, listen, friends, they're on Jesus. Sins so dark and heinous that you hope they never, ever make it to the light of day. You know what the good news is? (laughs) If your sins are in the heart and if your sins are in the hands of Jesus, the darkest, ugliest, heinous. Most vile and vulgar act you've you've ever done that only you know about, nobody else will ever know about. But all of those things which cause great drops of blood to flow from Jesus, he carries them out. And they're finally put on Satan. Atonement's done. Satan has nothing to do with our salvation. That price was paid by the blood of Jesus. But when that's over, Somebody's still guilty, and it's not God. And now that everybody knows that Satan's a liar, it's time for him to pay the price. And that goat that goes into the wilderness self-destructs, dies. This is the broad sweep of history. So when we go to the Scriptures, we should be anticipating to see the prophecies showing it to us in detail and predicting it in timeline. He lays His hands on the head of the live goat, confesses over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgression and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and He sends it away into the wilderness by the hand of a stable man. And that goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabitable land, and she'll release the goat in the wilderness." Yes, Satan is here for a while in a a broken-down world after Christ comes to think about what his future fate is before the execution comes. This is what the prophecies will declare. But every lamb and every sacrifice where blood was shed, that represents Jesus. Christ was offered once, Paul says, to bear the sins of many. And Christ has entered into the holy places not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but he's entered into heaven itself. I want you to know something. When Moses was told to prepare a sanctuary, he was told to make it after the pattern. He was shown the heavenly sanctuary. Why is there a sanctuary in heaven? Well, you need to know there is no altar of burnt offering in heaven, that happened on earth. Nothing was going to die in heaven. But the ministry of mediation and vindication is taking place in heaven. There is a temple in heaven. When you read the book of Revelation, you read about it. When you go beyond the book of Revelation, you see that the new earth, once the sin problem is dealt with, has no temple. The new Jerusalem itself is a perfect cube, which was the dimensions of the most holy place. But... Christ at this moment is doing a special work for us. He is mediating, and I'm going to show you in the prophecies how in fulfillment of prophecy he has now moved into a ministry of vindication. Could you say amen? amen? He did not come to condemn. He came to vindicate. The only person he cannot vindicate is the one who has not put their life into his hands. Christ is in heaven where the original sanctuary was at. The angels can watch Christ at work for man. The angels can have lessons on what Jesus is doing. Our prayers are ascending to the mediatorial work of Jesus as he continues to create and establish a relationship. It's not enough that Jesus died. It's the fact that he lives and his life in us is transforming us and reconstituting our readiness to live with him forever. Now listen, the Protestant world is awash today in speaking about once saved, always saved, and legal justification. I want to tell you something, glory, hallelujah, for legal justification. I need my record cleansed. But I'm here to tell you what's fallen off the radar map in modern America it's the fact that justification is not enough. I need a living relationship with Christ that actually transformed me. And that's what Christ opened up through the power of His blood. I now have access straight to the Father through the blood of Jesus. I don't go through a human being. I only go through the God-man Christ. And that relationship opened up has the ability to actually change my very nature through the exceeding great and precious promises, Peter will write. I can take on the nature of God. I will become just like him. By beholding him, I will be changed. But there are many today who are beholding the filth of this world. David said, I won't set anything vile before my eyes. And in the name of Christ, we find the remaking of not only culture, but individual hearts. Which, of course, enough individual hearts is what creates a community and a culture. You see, it's not enough just to have my record cleansed. I need my heart remade. That is the work of sanctification. And that's through the mediation of Christ and the relationship that was opened up by His blood. You see, I'm actually changed through the indwelling Christ. I eat different. There's things in the Bible that scriptures say aren't food. I enjoy my entertainment differently because I've been told not to put anything vile before my eyes but to choose whatsoever things are true and pure and noble and upright I talk different because there's purity in my heart and out of the heart flows the words I dress different because I understand I'm not supposed to show myself off in my youth or any other age about how wonderful this form of mine looks men or women but there's something that's modest about me I'm not a bragger I don't steal. I don't lie. Is it to my glory? No. It's to the glory of Christ because I'm not naturally this way. But this is the transforming relationship. Can the drunkard become sober? Can the philanderer become pure? Can the thief become honest? This is what Christianity is bereft of today because we put so much emphasis on God's ability to forgive, which is a form of grace and is glorious. But what about his ability to transform? But we're being transformed if we are before the images of this world. And their gods are our gods. And their entertainments are our entertainments. You see, friends, the three phases of the ministry of the sanctuary represent Christ's total package for restoration. And when we come to the final act of judgment, I want to tell you, when judgment is declared by God, it's a very sober thing. So Christ... He's entered into the heavenly sanctuary, which is not about copies and patterns. It's the original, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Seeing then that we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, because our high priest understands us. He hit his thumb with a hammer when he was in the carpenter shop. He was rejected by his friends and misunderstood. His family didn't even understand him therefore let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need one of my favorite songs that we don't ever sing is there's not a friend like the lowly jesus and one of the verses say did ever sinner find that he would not take him and the refrain is no not one no not one we need to sing it before the series is over Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have a high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. And I'm not going to be a bit embarrassed to say to you tonight, I know of no other denomination that teaches this glorious doctrine of Christ's ongoing ministry to apply the merits of his sacrifice to the transforming nature of man in today. And that Before Christ returns, there will be an examination of the records of men and an examination of their hearts. And Christ will come with his reward, the scripture says, which means there must be a judgment before Jesus comes. Is that judgment to vindicate or is it to condemn? Go back to John 3.18. No need for condemnation. That's already an easy understanding. God's desire is to vindicate us. He came as the priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that's not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves but with his own blood he entered the most holy place and once and for all having obtained eternal redemption. How much more shall the blood of Christ whom through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This relationship we can have is absolutely amazing. And Christ today is there for you and for me. We should not be surprised then when we read in the book of Revelation of a judgment. And it's interesting the verbiage just says the hour of his judgment has come. Now when we hear the word hour we should think prophetic timeline. We should think of prophecy this is a message that God has prophesied. We're not going into that tonight, but I need to remind you and explain to you in advance. Trust me, come back. We're not doing this tomorrow night, but farther down the series, we'll do it. The Bible predicts when the hour of judgment begins. Judgment is a serious thing. The book of life being opened and God examining all of our deeds. Daniel 7 mentions this, but I don't have time to go through all of these things tonight, so I'm going to skip over them and I'm going to go right down to the main point of what i'm doing tonight the scriptures say rejoice O young man in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth walk in the ways of your heart and in the eyes but know that for all these things god will bring you into judgment the world never talks about this until you're in big trouble the world has no interest in talking to you about accountability and judgment until you're so bad they kick you to the curb The world does not know how to offer the kind of grace that God alone can offer, which actually lifts you out of the mire, doesn't just forgive you so you can go back to it. Let's hear the whole conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is man's all. But God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So tonight, friends, it's important that you know Christ's work is a work of offering His own blood, mediating on His behalf, which has lifting power and vindicating us eventually. But nobody will be declared holy who has not hid themselves in the redeeming power of Christ to cleanse records and cleanse hearts. We have to acknowledge it. The wages of sin is death. The truth of the matter is, Christ died so that we could live forever. The gift of God is eternal in Jesus. And grace is the way we receive it. You can't do one thing to earn it or deserve it but there is one thing you need to do if you want it and that's choose to receive it acknowledge that you need it it's not by works it's the gift of god lest anybody should boast so tonight friends before i go farther in this series i'm not just about filling your head with ideas and problems i want to make sure everybody listening to me is progressing with heart and mind I want everybody that's on this journey with me to actually come away with assurance that their life is hidden in Christ. I've described some pretty serious things. Last night, I talked about future potentials that might not be that far away. Tonight, I want you to know that God who spoke this world into existence has an interest in you personally, but He's calling each of us to a renewed commitment to Him or to a new commitment, whatever it might be. Five simple steps to receiving the gift of eternal life. I want to go over them with you. I don't want to presume that you've all made this journey. Step number one, I have to accept the fact that God loves me. He's loved me with an everlasting love, the scripture says, and thus with his loving kindness, he's drawn me. If you're here tonight, it's probably because somebody was beautiful enough in your life to either introduce you to an interest in God or whose life showed the fruits of the spirit. And it's like I'd like to know why you are the way you are. I'll come with you to that meeting. Yes, the first thing you need to know is that God loved you and He reached out to you. The second thing is you cannot save yourself. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we're justified. In other words, God knows that we're bad, but He has the power to make us good. And in the process, He says, I'm dealing with the past. I'm covering what you've done if you'll confess and surrender. This is a free gift. And I love the pictures. Could we just look at the pictures for a minute? That lamb is in trouble. That sheep is in a difficult way. And this next picture just thrills my heart. Jesus showing up to rescue me. I have to believe that not only Jesus can, but that he wants to save me from myself. That's the problem. But when Jesus shows up, everything's better everything's good. He didn't come to say, how'd you get yourself in this position? He's a better person than you and I. How many times as a dad have I thought to myself, how did you do this? But boy, I sure like it when somebody shows up and says you got, in their mind they know, I sure got myself into a mess, but they don't mention it. Step number four, we have to confess our sins and believe that we're forgiven. It's hard to believe sometimes. The hardest person to believe it is not God and it's not the angels, it's you, it's me. But I have to accept the fact that it's true because I confessed it and He said He's faithful to forgive it. And He can do more than forgive it, He can cleanse. And the last thing is claim your gift. The vindicating God has paid the price for you to have it already. Claim your gift and receive it. Now tonight, I want to ask our deacons to hand out a card to you. This card is a chance for you to make a formal decision for Christ. He came and made a formal appearance for you. Deacons, if you would, please start handing out our response card. This has Jesus on prophecy on the front of it. And there are a few boxes for you to check tonight. There's pencils in your pews. If you don't have one, look there. And this is an opportunity for each of us to say, Jesus, you came and died for me. I want to live for you. If everyone would take a card, you may have made this decision before. That's wonderful. Make it again tonight. A decision for Jesus. The first box in the top left says, the topic was clearly presented from the Bible. If that was true, please check that box. If, if it makes sense to you that Jesus provides Himself the sacrifice, makes Himself the mediator, and goes on to vindicate us on the merits of our life being hid in Christ, check that box. The box across from, from the right says, I'd like to visit with the speaker. That could be here at church. It could be in your home. It might be after the series is done. I don't know. But if you'd like to sit down and visit with me personally, I'll try to do that. The third box says, I'd like more information on this topic. If you'd like some literature on this or to be pointed to just the right website, the right Bible study, we'd like to do that for you. But the box is at the bottom. And friends, if you're watching online, if you're one of the almost 500 sites that are watching, and I know Pastor Michael said it might be more than 500 people. I know of one site where three people were watching because they texted me today and told me. So if you're one of those at least four or five hundred people that are watching online, you can make your decision. These last two things, make your decision. I accept, or I have accepted and accept again Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, believing in Him for forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Friends, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Neither do I. But it's yours. God loves you. And the last one, I accept the Bible truth that was presented tonight and it's my decision by God's grace to believe and follow it in my life. Friends, take a minute and think about it as Matt and Josie sing. I'm going to come back just before they're done and then I'm going to invite you tonight to leave your card before you go with one of the pathfinders at the door. But take a moment and think about it. Let Jesus become more real to you. Listen to the words of the song.
1: the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect belief. A great high priest whose name is love Whoever lives and pleads for me My name is graven on his hand My name is written on his heart. Yeah.
0: know you may have been over this material before and it's left you afraid and wondering you know you're not holy you're honest enough with yourself to know those evil tendencies rise up again and again and you're not secure in christ i just want to remind you friends the human heart is deceitful above all things who can know it christ knows it and he's invited you anyway He's alone, the one who can transform it and change it. He's not put off by your tendencies. He knows you'll stumble, but he's calling you anyway. And he'll take you to the high places. He'll give you hope. He'll restore what the locusts have eaten. He will save us. Lo, this is our God. We've waited for him. He came 2,000 years ago. He's coming again. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. And tonight, I'm appealing to you. Make the decision again for Christ or make it for the very first time. Don't be worried about where the road is going. Enjoy the happiness you have as you surrender all to Him. Don't be afraid of what He might ask for. Remember what He's given and what He's done. So tonight, I'm appealing to you. Look the card over. Check the box that matters. Make a new commitment to Christ if you've already made one and let's go on to the high places and be thorough and free as David said restore to me the joy of my salvation then I'll teach transgressors your ways you see Satan doesn't want us to know Christ paid the price he doesn't want us to know Christ is mediating on our behalf and he wants us to know that while the hour of judgment he wants us to think while the hour of judgment is going on he either wants the world to be ignorant or afraid yes he does That's the first emotion in Eden. It's the last emotion that forces the mark of the beast. The love of Christ can set us free. It enhances and changes all things. It brings life where there was death and hope where there was despair. So friends and I, let's make that commitment to Jesus. Matt and Josie, take us the last step.
1: Behold Him there, the risen Lamb. My perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by.
0: Like what uh, A.T. Jones says when he talks about us confessing our sins. You know, when you confess your sins, you confess what you know of, but it's just a small representative part of the problem. <laughs> sometimes there's things we've done that we shouldn't have and we don't know about it. Sometimes there's things we should have done and we don't know about it. In Christ's blood, when we humble ourselves before Him and ask for forgiveness, it's, it's all forgiven. <laughs> It's not who's got the best memory and who can stay one step ahead of that sense of guilt. I'm a child of God. My life is hid in Christ. I'm motivated by new things. But friends, Christ may be calling you to break with the things of this world. Indeed, He is, so that you can know that love and joy and your face can radiate with the spirit of His indwelling presence. Tonight, I'm appealing to you. May we go from this place with His peace and His joy. I invite you to stand with me as we pray. Father, so many have missed the main point. The Pharisees didn't think they needed a sin-pardoning Savior. And over the years, the devil has tried to get us focused only on what was done on the cross, not what the living Christ is doing now in our lives. I'm praying, Lord, not only that we would accept the cleansing of our record and that we would be actually as if we had never been in rebellion and never done anything wrong, an amazing concept all by itself. But I'm praying also, Lord, that through the way that was opened up straight into the throne of heaven by the blood of Jesus, who now pleads, He ever lives to make intercession for us. I'm praying, Lord, may we not neglect the privilege of communion with You, reflecting on the great themes that lift us from this world and its mortality to the glorious joy that though we die, we will live again, and it's but a rest. So now, Lord, I pray, may we go forward into these prophecies knowing that your desire has always only ever been to save. And while you're honest, too much our friend to let us go down the wrong road without confrontation and interruption to the path of destruction and perdition, may we realize that when we find ourselves in trouble like Peter on the sea, your hand is reaching out. May we reach out to you tonight. Take away our sins. Give us freedom. Thank you that you've liberated us. May we live in that liberty now, I pray, and bless us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. As you go tonight, friends, I want to extend an invitation to you tomorrow, Satan on Prophecy versus Jesus on Prophecy. And then Sabbath morning, I'll be continuing this series at 8.30 and 11.20. God bless you as you go. There are refreshments. Drop your cards off if you would with one of the pathfinders at the door. And thank you so much for joining us this evening.